Good evening. Um, I'm here to welcome you for this um, lecture organized between the Center for Transnational History, the Institute of Jewish Studies, and the Institute of the Americas. And I welcome you all to this event, and thank you for coming. Um, I'm particularly grateful for David Lehmann from the um, University of Cambridge for having organized um, this event, and it's a wonderful opportunity for collaboration between different institutions. Um, we are very privileged to welcome tonight our speaker, Professor Nathan Wachtel from the Collège de France, and um, the topic of his lecture is The Jewish Indian Theory, the Problem of the Origin of the American Populations, 16th to 17th century. Just a few words about the agenda for this evening. After this short welcoming, I will ask David Lehman to introduce our speaker, then Nathan will give his um, lecture, which will last about an hour, and then Paolo Drino from the Institute of the Americas is moderating the discussion. After that will be the drinks served in the South Cloister, and um, I hope we have a wonderful evening together here. Thank you very much. Good evening. Well, it's, thank you very, very much for coming. I also want to thank you for coming and thank the Institute of the Americas, the Institute of Jewish Studies, and the Center for Transnational History for supporting this venture or this idea. Um, I also want to thank Oscar Martinez and Sarah Benizak who have contributed to um, operationalize it. I'm, it's a tremendous honor, of course, to welcome Nathan Vachtel. And he is a quite unique figure, I think, in modern studies of the Americas and also in the, well, really, the emergence or the development of ethno-history as a, as a discipline, as an approach. Nathan was born in the 1930s, and he came to the, his first book was called La Vision des Vaincus, which is translated into, certainly into English and Spanish, um, The Vision of the Vanquished, which came out in 1971, and that he said to me that, I said, well, why, what was that about? I and mean, where, where did the inspiration come from? And he said, well, this was a venture for the decolonization of history or the decolonization of historiography. And I think that, and in his, and in his later work also, what we find is this search, sort of this search for what he in fact called the subterranean history of the Americas. That is to say that you can look beyond the first victims and then the victims of the victims and the victims of the victims and it seems to actually never end. Uh, so the, the vision of the vanquished has stories about you know, not just the Incas but the people who were subordinated by the Incas and so on. And then he, um, did, he further developed the combination of research on both in archives and field work with the Retour des Ancêtres in 1990, Gods and Vampires, again translated into English, 1992. And this was some um, extensive research in, in Bolivia near Lake Titicaca with um, a people who once again had been somehow dis, kind of discarded as not even being people, and actually that turned out to be a misreading of the texts. And he, again, digs deeper and deeper. And then in the... But already in the 1980s, he began to look at, well, at studies of Jewish memory. And this had to do with his own experience um, when he had been um, living, not exactly secretly, but he had been living in the Auvergne during the war, protected by the Auvergne. And he and his family managed, at least he and his parents, not all his family, managed to survive the war. And so this left a very strong imprint upon him. And... Um, he, started, he wrote a book called Mémoire Juive with Lucette Valency and then started to work on the Muranos. And his books on the Muranos in the Americas are really remarkable. The, the first one, the, um, the Fait du Mémoire, the Faith in Memory, I'm not sure what the... is translated into English, into Portuguese, into Spanish, and I very, very strongly recommend it. It's one of the most beautifully written and even moving books as well as extremely scholarly that I have read and it again combines deep archival research with uh, contemporary field work and 
he then continued. So this is the third the phase of his subterranean history of the Americas. There have subsequently been others, um, Memoir Maran, Marano Memoirs, the logic of the Boucher, logique de Boucher, the logic of the stake, I suppose, of, in the sense of being burnt at the stake. And most recently, an assemblage of writings from the archives to the, to, to the field. So this is um, someone who has made an enormous contribution and who has also brought together, very interestingly, different fields which are often kept quite separate. So I'm really grateful for him to coming, and I ask you to welcome him. Thank you first to David Lehman for this kind invitation and for his too generous presentation. And it's a great honor for me to uh, present you this lecture in this University of London. And really, uh, for me, it's also moving. And uh, the lecture is as you announced, uh, about the Jewish-Indian theory, the problem of the origin of the American population. And to begin, I have to remember that what you know very well, the discovery of an unknown continent uh, was such an extraordinary event that Christopher Columbus himself was convinced until the end of his life that the island of Cuba that he reached during his first uh, journey was the eastern coast of the Asian continent. And it was only after his third and fourth travel during which he explored the Gulf of Paria, that he began suspecting the existence of another world. In actual fact, on the map attributed to his brother Bartolomeo, you see here, dated to 1503-1505, we can see a continuation between um, uh, Asia here, Asia, and a mainland that expands far to the southeast. On both sides of the equinoctial line and named Mondo Novo. It's a continuation uh, at this time between Asia and the Mondo Novo. However, the upsetting of traditional representations was not only limited to geographical knowledge, the exploration of an unknown continent was not only a matter of islands, capes, and lands, as the course of events was confirming the existence of a fourth part of the world, the Occident also discovered another humanity, of radical alterity, people who had never been suspected before. Many questions arose. Where did the savage, these savage people, to whom the name of Indians was given from the very beginning, due to the original error of Columbus? Where did these people come from? Did these, human, uh, did these human beings really have a soul? The papal bull of 
Paul III, Sublimus Deus, proclaimed in 1537, I quote, that the Indians are, the, are real human beings, are able to receive the Christian belief, end of quotation. Thus recognized as full human beings, part of the humankind, they became themselves descendants of Adam and Eve. But how to retrace their history? How the American continent had been populated? Did the Christian world remain unheard on this continent, uh, American continent, or had an apostle already traveled it? Theologians, cosmographers, and chroniclers suggested many answers to these questions, sometimes surprising ones, often based on a strict and rigorous argumentation, as we will see. Thus, the population of the American continent was said to be the result of extremely diverse migrations. Uh, for example, of Egyptians, Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Vikings, Tartar, and even of Chinese. Nevertheless, the most widespread theory, the most popular and persisting one over at least three centuries, was, was the one that declared Native Americans the descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel. The Jewish Indian theory not only allowed reconnecting the American population to the old world, but also directly to the Holy Scripture. There is an immense literature on the ten tribes of Israel, and I will try to summarize as much as possible. Some reminders. It's the introduction still, and the first part in seven minutes. There is an immense literature, well, and the ten tribes in question were those who formed the kingdom of Israel, and those who, after the Assyrian conquest in seven 22, before Christ, were deported by Salmanassar to the remote land of the Maids. The continuation of the story is narrated in one of the apocryphal texts, the um, fourth book of Ezra. The members of the ten tribes who had been uh, punished because they had fallen back into idolatry decided to return to the Mosaic Commandments, and thereafter, they took the decision to depart to an even more remote region, I quote, where mankind had never lived. And now I quote the relevant passage of Esdras, I quote. And they went into the narrow passages of the river Euphrates, for at that time, the Most High performed a miracle for them and stopped the channels of the river until they had passed. But to reach that region, there was a long way to go, a journey of a year and a half. And that region is called Arsaret. Then they dwelt there until the end of time. And now, when they are about to return, the Most High will again stop the channels of the river so that they may be able to pass. End of the quotation. The first exile that was imposed by Salmanassar is thus prolonged to a new exile in even farther and less accessible regions that is an exile within the exile. What will the ten tribes become hereafter? Their traces get lost. Henceforth, 
they represent a silent diaspora spread in undetermined places. There, they are protected by a stream which will, which will give rise to the legend of Sambatian. The river Sambatian, summarizing, during the six days of the week is, raging, is a raging stream that carries with it huge blocks of stone that render it insurmountable. It becomes calm on Sabbath, hence its name, but the ten tribes cannot cross it either precisely because of the sabbatical rule that forbids them to move. Thus, the tribes are, at the same time, protected and imprisoned by the Sambatium, whose strangeness is part of their mystery. What consequently characterizes the exiles from the kingdom of Israel is that, uh, definitively, we lose that trace. They have never returned, in contrast to the exiles of the kingdom of Judea, deported by Nabuchadnezzar to Babylon in 587 uh, before Christ. The ten tribes of, of Israel are irreversibly exiled and lost, hidden in some unknown deserted places. Accordingly, they become the symbol of exile in its essence. The place where, according to Esdras, they found a refuge, the place where humankind has never lived, is called Arsaret, that designates another land, another place radically different from all what is known. The close association of the ten tribes with the ideas of loss and desolation strongly charges the theme with a messianic potential. For, according to Isaiah, uh, the tribes will not reappear before the end of time. Then, together with all the Judeans scattered in the world, they will come back to Jerusalem, the center of the universe. These prophecies have contributed to reinforce the power of the myth that, for centuries, has imprinted the Jewish and then the Christian representations of space, where are the ten tribes, and of time, when will they reappear? The least sign announcing the coming back of the tribes would be interpreted as the manifestation of the divine plan and as such as the announcement of the end of time. According to some widespread Jewish beliefs, redemption will come when the diaspora will be spread to all parts of the world, even in its remotest parts, and according to Christian beliefs, the Messianic age will be accompanied by the conversion of all the Jews to Christianity. Consequently, discovering the traces of the lost tribes on the American continent was more than some surprising news. It announced for the ones and for the others, the imminence of the end of time, provoking strong fear and hope at once. Now the first part. <coughs> Let us first examine the Jewish Indian theory in the Hispanic world. The title of my lecture is obviously inspired by Richard Popkin's article published in 1989 entitled 
the rise and fall of the Jewish Indian theory. In this article, Popkin deals mainly with English and American authors, with Menasseh Ben Israel and English authors, but he practically ignores the Hispanic side. And the Spanish authors, of course, are the first and the creators of this theory. So, um, in fact, several Spanish chroniclers identify the Indians with the descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel. I will rapidly remind, I will not make an inventory, but I will remind to begin, the example of the Dominican Diego Duran, who in his work, History of the Indies of New Spain, finished in 1581. Uh, from the second sentence, he proclaims his conviction that the Indians are, I quote, Jews and part of the Hebrew people. End of the quotation. Through following, uh, through following a method of meticulous comparison between Indians and Jews, he notes strong similarities concerning, I quote, the way of life, their ceremonies, their rites, and superstitions, end of quotation. Among um, all uh, the common traits uh, of similarities, Durand focuses on the tendency to idolatry, the reason why God initially punished the ten tribes with exile, with exile and uh, errancy. I will now uh, focus longer on the first work, ah, Origen de los Indios en el Nuevo Mundo. Gregorio Garcia presents a complete and commented inventory of the many answers that so far had been given to this question by numerous authors who already had produced a vast body of literature of work. He, Garcia, strongly refutes the opinion of José de Acosta, who identifies the Native Americans only as descendants of migrants coming from Asia. Among the dozen of opinions he, Garcia, meticulously uh, examines, the one of the Jewish origin of the Indian population is given the most important place and full approval. This approval is based, as in Diego Duran, on an inventory including many aspects, their appearance, clothes, gestures, languages, their customs, their timid character, and even, even their tendency to idolatry, of course. For example, I quote, I quote Garcia, the stories from Peru tells that when discovering Peru, Francisco Pizarro and Don Diego de Almagro arrived in an Indian province whose inhabitants had and Jewish gestures, long nooses, and spoke in a way and with an accent as if most of the sounds they uttered were glottes. End of quotation. So, according to Garcia, even if the original Hebrew language had changed over time, the Indians per uh, preserved that characteristic pronunciation that, quotation, hurts the glottis. Garcia uses also the type of etymological arguments that appear to us uh, ingenuous, but seemed at his time uh, obvious and, or, and even scientific. Um, for example, um, the root Mexi in the Mexican language would derive from the Hebrew Messiah. In the same way, 
I quote, the name of Peru is Emru and means fertile land because it stems from the verb para, that means to fructify. End of the quotation. Other similarities are to be found in the field of architecture. Garcia expresses his admiration for the Inca monuments, I quote, whose stones were so well polished and assembled with such an art that in many places you could hardly see the junctures of one with another. End of quotation. Now, this art is nothing else than the art that the Hebrew practiced in Jerusalem where, I quote, the stones of towers and walls, as Flavius Joseph describes it, were assembled in a way that you could not see their junctures anymore. When it comes to rites and customs, Garcia affirms that the practice of circumcision is widespread within the Indian population, particularly in Yucatan, as well as, I quote, amongst the Totonacos and the Mexicans from New Spain, end of quotation. And about the Ten Tribes' tendency to idolatry, it presents the aspect, for example, of the adoration of the high mountains, which is so widespread in the Indians of Peru. Now the question, how were the ten tribes able to reach America. Gregorio Garcia reconstitutes the ten tribes itinerary, taking in consideration the latest geographical knowledge of his time. And remember that during the 15th and 16th century, this geographical knowledge suffered great modifications, upsettings, not only because of the maritime discoveries in the West and East and East Indies, but also owing to the land travels that provided uh, more complete uh, information on the Asian continent. Cartography, the art and science of globe mapping, made spectacular progress. And it is in this context that, for the first time in history, the name of Arsaret, the undetermined place where, according to Esdras, the ten tribes would finally find their refuge, for the first time in history, the name of Arsaret appears on a map. It's the case with a map entitled Asia in the Present Time, drawn in 1544 by the German theologian and cartographer Sebastian Münster, professor of Hebrew at the University of Heidelberg. Münster situated Arsare in the very northeast of the Asian continent, Beyond, beyond the Sitchin Sea. Situating Arsaret on a map, Münster transformed a millenarian mythical tradition into a geographical fact. Twenty years later, in 1564, <coughs> The Flemish cartographer Abraham Ortelius, in his Theatrum Orbis Terum, would adopt Münster's locating of Arzaret, Arzaret in the very northeast of Asia. I don't know if you see it. It's not well. Um, it is difficult to read. Uh, maybe here or higher. Well, uh, but trust me. It's something here. Well. Um, and moreover, 
uh, Ortelius added to the former map, he added an essential detail in the south of the Ten Tribe Lost Refuge. He inscribed a region called Anian, and we can see Anian here. Anian. Anian. And I will come to this. This Anian, this region Anian, gives name to the Strait of Anian that separates the Asian continent from America. And you can hear Strato Anian. Strato de Anian. So you can see, more or less. Well. And uh, drawing this onion strait, of course, will later be called the Bering Strait. Bering Strait. Drawing on this geographical knowledge, the latest of his time, Garcia retraces the itinerary that the ten tribes followed. From the land of the maids through Tartary as far as Arsaret, and after they continue their migration on land to Mongolia and to the, other, to the other borderlands of the Asian continent, from where they cross the Strait of Anian and arrive on the American continent. And it's indicated also as Mondono. You cannot see, but you trust me also. A crossing of immense importance as tribes of the, is, um, as the tribes of Israel move from one continent to another, from Asia to America, from the ancient world to the new world. Gregorio, Gar uh, Gregorio Garcia opens the way for a decisive step in the direction of what we could call the globalizing of the myth, the myth of the ten tribes of Israel. Then, reconstructing the itinerary of the migrants groups, Garcia points, on, uh, points out the cultural influences they certainly experienced during their peregrination. I quote, they gain great Tatari gradually on a land way, and they adopted certain of the customs and rites they were, that were observed in these provinces and kingdoms for the Tartars, as well as their neighboring nations, worshipped the sun. And Worship the sun is one of the character of many people in America. At the end of his work, after having meticulously examined 11 different opinions on the origin of the Native Americans, Garcia dedicates a last chapter to his conclusion, presented in the form of his own opinion, uh, his parecer. Gregorio Garcia expresses clearly his firm belief in the Jewish origin of the Native Americans, but in a conciliatory recapitulation, he admits the possibility of different origins, of different migrations waves that do not exclude each other. This was uh, not, um, there was not one and only travel from the ancient world, but many at different times, on water and on land. Therefore, the American populations do not only descend from the ten tribes, but also from Carthaginians, from Phoenicians, from people who came from Atlantis, the island Atlantis, and uh, also from Tartary or even from China. Consequently, Multiple origins are combined and give rise to reciprocal exchanges as well as to complex phenomena 
of borrowing, rejecting, transforming, and innovating. I quote, that is why amongst the nation, the Native American people, there is such a diversity and variety of languages, laws, ceremonies, customs, and clothing, end of quotation, and these diverse and varied elements eventually lead to a vast range of métissage, and Gregorio Garcia concludes his work by reminding that similar processes of hybridization had already been at work in the metropolitan Spain itself. I will rapidly mention another work that systematically examines the question, published in 1687, the Tratado Unico y Singular del Origen de los Indios, by Diego Andres Rocha, Oidor at the court of Lima. Uh, Rocha agrees in the wool with Gregorio Garcia's conclusion, I will not repeat, but some original themes of his tratado are worth to be mentioned. First original aspect, a strong messianic inspiration. When Christopher Columbus discovered the American continent, the Spanish were confirmed in their election. They had been elected by God to convert to Christianity the refugees of Israel and the other migrants that would follow them. The Spanish king is appointed as, I quote, the second Moses for the conquest of the Indies. End of the quotation. The Indies that are themselves likened to the promised land. A second original theme in Rocha's Tratado, he insists especially on one characteristic of the ten tribes, their innocence, because they are not guilty, indeed, of the Deicid, as they had already left Palestine since seven centuries when Jesus Christ was crucified. And neither are guilty the Native Americans, descendants of the Ten Tribes. Moreover, the Jewish origin of the Indians, therefore descendants of Jacob, provides them with an eminent dignity. They are worse to be called I quote, nobles. Well, and now the second part of this deals about the Jewish Indian theory in the northeastern European countries, in Holland and England, which in a way took over from the Iberian countries as promoters of the theory and promoters to its highest uh, degree. The transition between the two cultural areas, Iberian and Northwestern Europe, is, of course, incarnated by Menasseh Ben Israel, born until under the name of Manuel Diaz Sueiro in Lisbon in 1604, in a new Christian family whose several members had been condemned by the Inquisition. At a very young age, he had immigrated to Amsterdam, where he became rabbi, and soon gained, gained a great intellectual reputation, broadly recognized. He played the role of a frequently um, uh, consulted interlocutor in theor theological debates and appears to have initiated a dialogue between Jews and Christians. As such, Menasseh Ben Israel had been repeatedly consulted about an affair that caused a sensation in the 1640s. 
It is the story that the traveler, Antonio Montesinos, identified as, uh, by Menasseh Ben Israel, as Portuguese for his nation and Jew for his religion, the story that Montesinos told him in the presence of witnesses. Well, uh, Antonio Montesinos himself, a new Christian, had embarked to the Western Indies and working in different uh, enterprises, he eventually arrived to the kingdom of New Granada, in nowadays Colombia. And his extraordinary story is known, but I have to give some details because to understand uh, the continuation of the, uh, of the story. I will try and summarize as much as possible, but we have to know some important details. Antonio Montesinos relates the travel that he undertook in the direction of Quito together with mule drivers who worked under the direction of the Indian cacique Francisco. Certain incidents on the way were an occasion for the mule drivers to express their hatred against the Spanish people. The cacique Francisco then alluded to a vengeance that would be brought against the, the latter, the Spaniards, I quote, thanks to the intervention of a hidden people, end of the quotation. Montesinos did not pay attention to these words at first, but later, coming back to Cartagena de Indias, he was arrested by the Inquisition, and in his jail, he remembers some of the incidents of his travel, and all of a sudden reveals these Indians are Hebrews. Now it happens, and it happened, that Montesinos is released for lack of evidence. He immediately goes and finds the cacique Francisco. He divulges to him that he is a Jew, and um, he succeeds in convincing Francisco of guiding him to the hidden people. Francisco and Montesinos undertook a long and difficult travel to the mountains, to a river, where Francisco announces, it is here that you will see your brothers. Later, some men and women arrive by Kenu and embrace Montesinos. Then two men, after having taken him between them, recite the prayer Shema Israel. Afterwards, they convey a mysterious message to him with the announcement that in a new, in a near future, they will leave their refuge. On their way back, Francisco gave some explanations. The people they have just met were the sons of Israel. These sons of Israel had arrived first on this land. Then, after them, came the Indians, Francisco's ancestors, who lead a war against these sons of Israel, and the sons of Israel had to hide, to hide in the mountains. But Francisco announces that according to the tradition transmitted by his ancestors, I quote, at the end of time, these sons of Israel will leave their refuge and will become the master of the world. This extraordinary story of Antonio Montesini, the discovery of the lost tribe, tribes, could not fail to arose from a Jewish point of view a strong messianic repercussion. The sensational resurgence of the lost tribes clearly meant 
the beginning of the regathering of the exiled, it announced the end of time. But the remorse about the surprising discovery provoked an equally strong repercussion from the Christian perspective, meeting with an already existing, very vivid messianic hope. If the coming of the end of time, according to the Christian tradition, were to be preceded by the conversion of the Jews, the identification of the Indians as descendants of the lost tribes would also mean that the evangelization would directly contribute to the arrival of the messianic age. Now, at the same time, the English millenarian Puritans received a piece of news from the American colonies about the great success concerning the conversion of the Indians. This news pointed out particularly the work of the missionary John Eliot in Massachusetts. In this context, Thomas Thorogood, pastor in Norfolk, um, Thomas Thorogood circulated in 1648 a short treatise with the explicit title, the title of the treatise, Jews in America, or the probability that the Indians are Jews. Like the Spanish authors, Thomas Thorogood developed the theme of the similarities between the Indians and the Jews under many aspects, linguistic, ceremonial, uh, clothing, ritual, and so on, uh, like in uh, Gregorio Garcia. He uh, described the Ten Tribes as the radical incarnation of, lot, of loss and exile, and reminding the book of Esdras, he observes, I quote, a land where man had never lived, what could this land be if not America? These ten tribes are completely lost, and in which place could they be found if not in America? End of the quotation. And the word America is underlined in, the, in both cases. After reading Thorogood's work, two Puritans, theologians, John Dury and Nathaniel Holmes, both of them fervent millenarists, independently from each another, addressed Menasseh ben Israel to ask him for his opinion. And uh, as an answer to these consultations, Menasseh ben Israel wrote and published in 1650 in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Spanish, the work entitled, entitled Mikve Israel or Esperanza de Israel. Uh, uh, we may summarize this book of um, Menasseh ben Israel. Uh, organizing his argumentation or the argumentation under two different questions. First question, is Antonio Montesino's story credible? Could the ten tribes really be found in America? And second question, what is the origin of the Native American? Are the Indians really descendants of the ten tribes of Israel? To the first question, Menasseh's answer is positive. Yes, Montesino's story is credible. There is no reason to doubt. He repeated the story under oath until his uh, deathbed. Menasseh's opinion 
is also based on an exhaustive knowledge of the vast literature uh, dealing with the ten tribes, uh, including, in the case of Minasse, including, of course, the Hebrew literature. Now, the resurgence of the lost tribes in America confirms the messianic hopes as it is made explicit in the title of Menasseh's work, Hope of Israel. The exile of the Jewish people seems uh, to be expanded now to the remotest borders, and we know that redemption will come when the diaspora will have attained its higher extension. What is more, to the presence of the ten tribes of Israel on the American continent is now added the presence of the descendants of the other tribes, Jude and Benjamin, with the recent creation by Jews come from Amsterdam, in Brazil occupied by the Dutch, in Recife, the creation of the first Jewish community in the American continent. And Menasseh ben Israel himself had dreamt to move there in Recife. And there is still more to it. The idea of an exile that is being completed induced Menasseh to conceive the project of working in favor of the, the readmission, in favor of the readmission of the Jews here in England, where since the expulsion in 1290, they had been practically absent. England was the last corner, England is a corner, and it was the last corner of the world still devoid of Jews. The return of the Jews into the corner, into this corner, was therefore one of the prerequisites for the messianic era to start. Menasseh ben Israel traveled to England here in 15, uh, in, uh, excuse me, in 1655, in order to propose his project of readmission of the Jews directly to Oliver Cromwell. I mean, he did, he did. He died in 1657, but the final decision to readmit the Jews in England, taken in 1664, was in great extent owing to his action. Finally, Menasseh ben Israel concluded that the presence of the lost tribes in the Cordillera Mountains attests that, I quote, the Israelites coming from Tartary were the first inhabitants of America, end of quotation. And concerning the itineraries he adopts, the conclusion of Gregorio Garcia, we know now very well, from the land of the maids to Arsaret, passing through Tartary, and from Arsaret to the American continent, crossing the trade of Arian. Moreover, Menasseh ben Israel attributes to the first arrivals on the American continent, that is, to the Israelites of the Ten Tribes, the construction of monumental buildings whose remains are, can still be admired today. Quotation still, we can suppose that the great construction that the Spaniards recently discovered in different places are the work of the Israelites before they hid in the mountains. End of quotation. And Menasseh ben Israel describes, for example, the site of Tiri. Tiwanaku, Tiwanaku, now in Bolivia, where a huge hall was, I quote, dedicated to the creator of the universe. However, since the Indians were idolaters, 
and did not know how to use iron tools to break stone. They could not be the constructors. Rather, I continue the quotation, we could suppose that it was, this building was, a synagogue built by the Israelites. The interpretation has its, its logic. Furthermore, Menasseh ben Israel insists on the fact, uh, like ben, uh, Garcia, the fact that the ten tribes never walked their way simultaneously altogether. Many groups remained at some place, at some point of, in time, while others continued their peregrination, so that one can find the ten tribes everywhere. Hence the conclusion, the ten tribes are disseminated and not located in one single place. In other words, the diaspora spreads into every world region, in the Western Indies, in Tartary, in China, in Ethiopia, etc. The art of conciliation leads Menasseh ben Israel to develop an ecumenical conception of the lost tribes, dispersion, according to which they could now be anywhere and anybody could pretend to be a descendant of them. Here, the globalizing process reaches its highest degree of uh, full, uh, fulfillment. The second question asked about the origin of the Indians. Are they themselves descendants of the ten tribes? In spite of his ecumenical conception of the dispersion of the tribes, Menasseh's answer is here resolutely negative. He neatly denies the commonplace widely held among the Iberic populations, I quote, like, the Spaniards who live in the Western Indies generally believe that the Indians draw their origin from the Ten Tribes, but they are manifestly wrong. End of the quotation. According to Menasseh ben Israel, the Indians are mostly descendants of the Asian Tartars who followed the way opened by the Ten Tribes, which means that they also crossed the Strait of Anian. About the many similarities between Indians and Jews, Menasseh ben Israel explained them in terms of influences, imitation. I quote, when you compare certain laws of the two peoples, you can find many similarities in lots of points so that you could easily conclude that the Indians borrowed them from the Jews while they lived among them or received them from some of those who stayed while the co-religionists were hiding in the mountains. You, you recognize here the story of Montesinos. Hope of Israel's impact can be measured in the great number of editions and translation of his work in which Menasseh ben Israel kept repeating the exulting announcement of the imminence of our redemption of the evidence that the end of time is near. And we could also say, say that his work contributed some 15 years later to the enthusiastic welcoming of the messianic movement of Sabbatai Tzvi into the Amsterdam Jewish community. Well, now, the epilogue and conclusion, seven minutes. Despite Menasseh ben Israel's from, um, firm refuting, the Jewish Indian theory continued to be very popular, particularly in the uh, Anglophone world. Some examples no more. For many details, the work of Richard Pope King is excellent. Some um, points no more. For example, 
William Penn, the founder of um, the city of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, Penn, wrote in 1682 in his diary, I quote, As for the origin of this extraordinary people, I cannot help thinking that they are of Jewish race. I would say they originate from the ten long-lost tribes, end of quotation. And several works in the English colonies until the second half of the 18th century, later in the United States until the beginning of the 19th century, relate histories of the Indians connecting them to the ten lost tribes. Last but not least, we have um, to remember and honor the passionate research of Lord, Lord Edward Kingsborough, who, in order to show that the Indians rightly descend from the ten lost tribes, dedicated his life and fortune to possess a magnificent collection of Mexican codices and to the admirable publication Antiquities of Mexico, whose first volume was published in 1831. And only to keep in mind, I will mention here the Book of Mormon, the Holy Scripture of the Church of the Saints of the Last Days, published in 1830 by Joseph Smith, its origin of the Book of Mormon, uh, is attributed to Mesoamerican prophecies themselves inherited from the lost tribes. And the conclusion. What put an end to the Jewish Indian theory was evidently better ethnographical knowledge of the indigenous societies. It was not sustainable anymore that there were uh, so many similarities between Indians and Jews as regards customs, languages, rights, and so on. At the same time, the criteria of proof, as we know, changed. The Holy Scripture was not the basis of truth anymore, from the incontestable priority of the biblical authority, we, um, we passed to that of scientific positivism. Henceforth, religious explanations are rejected in order to be replaced by so-called scientific ones. I use here scientific in quotation marks because we have to keep in mind that in the middle of the 19th century, the development of physical anthropology was primarily based on craniometry. In the United States, Samuel Morton became an authority for many decades. In 1839, he published Crania Americana, or a comparative view of the skulls of various aboriginal nations of North and South America, measuring some hundreds of skulls, their forms, profiles, and volumes. These methods enabled him to evaluate uh, intelligence, depending on the contained volume, in order to consequently define the distinct characters of different human races, and at the same time to establish their hierarchy. The Indians also inspired the beginnings of social anthropology in the second half of the 19th century, with notably Louis, Morg uh, Louis Henry Morgan, who studied, as we know, the systems of kinship doing field work on the Iroquois and its admirable work, of course. But we know also that finally, finally uh, 
uh, Morgan dedicate he dedicated his further investigation to establish the evolutionist theory, according to which the history of human societies would follow the different stages from savagery to barbarism and to civilization. In other words, be it physical or social anthropology, the scientific discourse is imbued with an idea of a hierarchy of races and cultures, and the Indians will gain nothing by it. They now find themselves, together with the black people, at the bottom of the scale, they are classed in an inferior race, their societies are called primitive, and it's a decree of the mid-19th century science. The Jewish Indian theory was certainly mistaken, erroneous, but at least it accorded dignity to the Indians, what our social sciences were at that, po at that point still far recognizing. Thank you. Thank you very much.